So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a little bit about what I'm going to take the approach I'm going to take here. Partly that's because I think there's a way of approaching questions about consent which we don't normally do in bioethics, which I think in opens up some interesting questions. That's the first part. I'm going to say a little bit about what I'm going to call regulatory consent. That's basically the law part of it. Uh, it's going to take about five minutes to deal with. And then the rest of it's going to be on respect for autonomy and at the end, a bit about what an alternative approach to thinking about information and consent might be. We'll begin away with from the respect for autonomy kind of story. That's um, The approach I want to start with is basically I want to start with this question, which is um, why do doctors want to give patients treatment? Um, why do researchers want to include people in their research um, projects? What I say is going to be all about doctors. It won't all apply to researchers, as we'll see. Here's the, what I think the answer is. Doctors want to give patients treatment because they think those treatments will benefit the patient. I mean, I'm hoping that's not too controversial. Uh, <laughs> they think it will benefit them and they ought to do what benefits their patients. So that's going to be there's some kind of duty of beneficence. Why does that give them any infam... Does this work up in there? Okay. Um, no, that used the screen. <laughs> I've tried that one before. Yeah, that'll, that'll do that, don't do that. Not that one. You might need to do the keyboard, yeah. Okay. Why should doctors provide information about treatments? I'm going to say there are four, three, three things that are needed. Um, if you've got some reason to do something, surgery is going to be my example. It would be wrong to do that unless she has the patient's valid consent. And valid consent here just means what it normally means. It's the informed, voluntary agreement of a competent patient. That's that's what I mean by that. The consent to be valid, the consent, person consenting has to have certain information. Information like what the potential harms will be, what the consequences are, what's going to be done, and loads of other stuff depending on your account. I'm going to focus on these because I think all accounts of valid consent have those in them. And why does that give the doctor a reason to um, give the patient information? Well, I think this is what happens. She, she has a reason to perform the surgery because she's got a duty of beneficence. She can't do that, it would be wrong to do that unless she has consent, she doesn't have consent yet, because that would fail to respect the patient's autonomy. What should she do? She should try and get consent. The patient can't give consent unless she's got information. She should give the patient the information. That's a, that, I think, is what's going on here. Not usually spelled out in this way, but I think that's what's going on. Um, it, you need, so part of the question is gonna be, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong to give the do something for a patient which is aimed at benefiting the patient without the patient's consent? Because not everything we do that benefits people is wrong without consent. If I give my friend a birthday present, I don't need her fully informed voluntary agreement before I do it. Right? So what's so special about medical, the medical case, the treatment case? That's effectively, I guess, the question. And I'm going to say there are both regulatory and non-regulatory reasons. Regulatory reasons are just basically the, the law, codes of conduct, anything like that, says you're not allowed to do it without consent. That's, um, non-regulatory reasons are going to be mostly it would not respect the patient's autonomy to do it without consent. That's the split. Often when you look at people writing, they kind of blend these two together. And I want to keep them apart. 
say a little bit about regulatory reasons and how they work, but this is going to be very brief. Regulations have often this form, they say things like, before giving treatment you must obtain the voluntary consent of a patient who has been informed about things like the possible harm, whatever, whatever. Um, if the doctor were to comply with the regulations, then uh, she would provide him with that information. That's the only way in which uh, she could give the treatment in a way that complies with the regulations she should comply with. That's going to be the position that I want to take here. I'm not particularly concerned, as you'll see, what those regulations should say. Well, I'll say a little bit about them. Here's the spelt out in more detail. Um, the basic point is going to be that if the patient says, doesn't have the information, says, look, I want the treatment, I agree to it, and that it would still be wrong for the doctor to give her, him that treatment because it would still be against the law. He hasn't got the information. He would not comply with the regulation. As soon as he has that information, he can make, he can consent. He can give valid consent. The two things I want to draw out from this are these. If you need valid consent, that's informed consent, then some people, the people who don't have that information, cannot consent at that time. Whatever they say won't do the job that consent needs to do. So you're saying, you guys don't know this stuff, you can't consent. The second thing I want to say that follows is as you gain information, you gain the ability to consent. In the case of the law, it's quite easy to see why those two things work, why those things are true. As we'll see, when I come to look at the case of respect for autonomy, it's very hard to see how the same things work there. So that's going to be a kind of key step. Um, I, I'm bringing it up here because in the regulation, it's, e it's not always easy to see that's a problem because we're so used to thinking about regulations and laws. It's pretty straightforward in that case. So that's, um, that's what I'm going to say about the law, effectively. I'm going, to, I'm going to take it that mostly we think there are reasons to obtain consent which are not purely based on the law or codes of conduct or regulations. And I think in fact what people think is that it's because it would be wrong to do without consent that we have laws that say it would be wrong to do without consent. That, that's the way around it goes. Um, if you think that the only reason to have those regulations is that they're, they're there to ensure doctors respect their patients' autonomy, the implication of what I say is that all those regulations should be rewritten in a way which is much more minimal than it is at the moment. If you think regulations are there for other purposes, it won't have any such implication. But it depends on why you think the regulations are there and what their role is. As it happens, I don't think that's the only role of uh, regulation. So I don't think my case has got as much serious implications as other people do sometimes. But um, that would be, I, I can answer questions of what I think that role might be, but I'm not going to deal with that question here. Um, the answer is going to, the focus is on autonomy and the basic problem when you start talking about autonomy is that there are multiple meanings of the word autonomy. Whenever I try and write about autonomy, it's like trying to grab jelly. I grab hold of it and it squishes out and somebody doesn't know what I'm talking about. I grab that bit, it's not what I'm talking about, it just goes all over the place. So the last time I wrote this paper, paper in bioethics takes it that there are three different accounts of autonomy and it goes through them one at a time. And the criticism that I've got is, well that's all very well with those three, but then look, there's ten others. You haven't said anything about them, maybe they work better than the ones that you focused on. 
I don't think that's a very good criticism, but I'm going to try, in the sense that I think the ones I used were the ones that everybody in medical ethics uses for, to support the account that's based on autonomy. Um, but I'm going to, this time I'm going to try and avoid that by not saying anything about what I mean by autonomy. It's supposed to be a structural problem with any account. But I'm going to split accounts for autonomy into two classes. One class is when we talk about autonomous actions, decisions, choices, something like that. And the second group are when we take autonomy as a feature of people. We have autonomous people in the second case, we have autonomous choices in the first case. Uh, the first one will be a complete disaster in terms of trying to get an account of informed consent out of it. The second one will get you an account of consent, but it won't get you much further than that. That's going to be the, the two-part strategy. I'm going to start with... I'm going to skip that one. Um, <laughs> the reason I'm going to skip that slide is it comes up later. Um, so if the obligation to respect autonomous choices was to give us a reason to give information to patients, I think four things are required. The first is the one I've been going on about so far, the doctor has a reason to give the patient the treatment. I'm going to take that from a duty of beneficence. It would be wrong because it would be a failure to respect autonomous choice to act without the patient's valid consent. It would not be wrong on those grounds too far. It would not be wrong on those grounds to give the patient treatment with his valid consent. We don't normally say that, but basically if it would still be wrong, even if they consented, there's no point in getting consent. Do anything, right? Pointless. And uh, this is going to be the key bit. The patient can only give valid consent if he's sufficiently well informed, whatever you mean by that. Right. And I'm going to be open. Have as much or as little in there as you like. I'm going to make that so minimal that it's less than anybody's account, effectively. That's what I'm going to say uh, needs to be the case. Now the problem I want to say is mm. with number two. Um, because I'm trying to be very general here, I'm going to split accounts of autonomous choice into two types. The first type are ones where for a choice to be autonomous, it is not required that the person making the choice has any particular information. You're using a kind of Frankfurt kind of account of autonomous actions. That's true, right? Frankfurt doesn't say an action is autonomous only if you understand the potential consequences. It's about the structure of your desires, the structure of your mental states. Uh, on Chrisman's account, it's going to be that it's autonomous if the process that led to it was under your control. Right? There's no need that you understand the consequences for it to be autonomous. In that case, I'm going to say that the doctor should obtain their consent, maybe, um, but giving information is not a way to obtain consent. They don't need information to consent, at least not directly. I'll come back to the indirect bit later on, because in fact there is a, a way to respond, which I'm going to come back to. That's not the account of autonomous choice that you find in medical ethics. Right? The account of medical ethics is this one. This comes from uh, Tom Beecham and uh, James Childress. For a decision to be autonomous, it's necessary that the person making that decision has certain information, information about things like what's going to be done, what the consequences are. Um, so here's how I want to say that that's a bad account. The patient either has the information or doesn't. If they, don't have, they already have the information, there's no reason to give it to them. Right? They already have it, they need to do something different they've already got. The focus is going to be in this one. If he doesn't have the information, 
he cannot make an autonomous choice either to have the treatment or not to have the treatment. And it's that second bit that's going to be important. If he says he doesn't want it, it's not an autonomous refusal, because he hasn't got enough information to make an autonomous choice. Um, and I'm going to say that because of that, it would never be a failure to respect his autonomous choice given any treatment, irrespective of what he says. That will take a bit of arguing for, because that's directly contrary to what a lot of people say. Um, I'm going to start with what I think respect means. I'm going to take it that respect here is being used in its standard meaning. The standard meaning of respect tells you some, how you should respond to things. So to respect a person is to treat the person in, in a way that um, is called for by the fact that they are a person. Um, the obligation to respect a person tells you absolutely nothing about what you can or cannot do to chairs. Right? They're not people, they don't tell you anything about it. It's only if they're a person that you have an obligation to respect a person, gives you anything to do, any obligations. Because of that, the obligation to respect a person's autonomous choice only gives you a reason to do something or not to do something if in fact they've made an autonomous choice. If they've made no choice, there's nothing to respect. Right? There's no the requirement to respect the choice doesn't tell you anything. That's going to be the first step. The second step I want to say is, and I think this is often missed in discussions in fire ethics, is the mere fact that someone hasn't consented doesn't mean they've made a choice not to have the treatment. Often they won't have made any decision yet at all. So when I go to my doctor, I don't make a decision straight away. I kind of think about it a little bit. At that point, I have made neither a choice to have the treatment nor a choice not to have the treatment. Um, if I don't have enough information to make an autonomous choice, whatever you think that is, um, whatever, even if I say I don't want the treatment, that's not an autonomous choice not to have it. And therefore there's no need to respect that from the obligation to respect autonomous choice. Um, because of that, given the patient hasn't got this information yet, at the moment there's no reason to respect any of their choices from the requirement to respect autonomous choice, as it's spelled out. The obligation to respect their autonomous choice there, therefore doesn't tell us anything about what we can or cannot do. It particularly doesn't tell us wrong to give them the treatment, even though they haven't agreed to it yet. They haven't made any choice, any relevant choice in this case. Now, let's go back to where I, what am I going to say here? Um, let's go back to my starting point. The doctor thinks this treatment is best for the patient. Because it's best for the patient, she should give it to him. She's got a duty of beneficence. Uh, I said, the reason she should get consent is because it would be wrong to do it without consent. Now, the idea we're looking at is it would be wrong because it would fail to respect their autonomous choice. But that's just not wrong on those grounds. It gives you no reason at all. And because you don't need to seek their consent in order to respect their autonomous choice, the obligation to seek consent doesn't give any reason to provide the information. I'm going to say it's actually stronger. It gives you a reason not to provide the information. Why does it give you a reason not to provide the information? If you give them the information, they can make an autonomous choice. They might say no. Here's a general rule of reasoning. If you ought to do A, and B would prevent you from doing A, you ought not to do B. So on this account, it's going to say, you ought not to give them the information. You ought to put them in a position where they could make an autonomous choice to say, not have the treatment, which you would then have to respect. That's going to be it. Now, there's something clearly gone wrong somewhere along the way. I think 
you should provide information to patients. Um, this is, but that, so all I'm saying is that this doesn't get respect for autonomous choice gives you no reason to do that. Um, I'm going to obviously I'm going to look at a couple of objections. Uh, the first one is in practice you need you, if you try and give if you, my doctor try and gives me treatment without my agreement I'm going to struggle and refuse. Right, that's true. For practical reasons she needs to get me to at least agree. But if I say I don't want it in that case, that's not an autonomous refusal. I don't have any information yet. So. It may be for practical reasons she needs my agreement, but she doesn't need my informed, autonomous choice to have the treatment. She just needs to stay, to stay still long enough so that she can stick the needle in my arm. Right. Uh, no requirement um, for uh, an autonomous choice, there, just a choice. Um, the other second objection I want to look at very briefly, and this is going to be very brief, is you might think I am overly literally using interpreting the word respect. People who use this often say, well, what that includes, we should promote autonomous choice, we should enable autonomous choice. It's not just about what we do after someone's made a choice. Um, given what autonomous choice means here, that just means a more informed choice. Right? We call it autonomous in this context, but really just mean informed. Um, now the question is, is there any such obligation? And the answer is going to be, um, no. Um, no, that's going to be yes. Yes and no. There are two options. It might be that we have an obligation to enable people to make an autonomous choice because that's a necessary step to something we have an obligation to do. I've already uh, given an example of that. The law says, I ought to get your consent before I give you treatment. And I can only get your consent if you've got certain information. So you can make, you, know, you, you, and you can make an informed choice. Given the law says that, I have a reason to enable you to make an autonomous choice, which stems from the fact that I want I should obey the law. Right? It's an instrumental reason. It's not standalone in any way. I think that's true. I think there are reasons to enable autonomous choice of that type, given what we mean by autonomous choice here. Um, but. That's not relevant. That's not going to affect my argument. That's just there's going to be some other other story other than an autonomous choice story to get that to work. So and we'll come to another option for that. So for there to be a problem, you have to say we ought to provide information to enable to be, make people to make more informed choices because there's a kind of standalone obligation to do that. And I'm going to say yeah, that would be a problem for me if there was any such obligation, but there isn't. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that except to give you an example of what, to illustrate why I think there isn't. That example is this. Suppose you're doing a research project which involves taking blood samples from 200 healthy volunteers. And you approach me and you say, Tom, I'm coming out of this research project and I say, stop right there, I'm not taking part. I've made a decision not to take part in your research. I know absolutely nothing about it. I don't know the name of the project, what you might, I know nothing. If there's a standalone obligation to help people, to enable people to make more autonomous choices, what you should do in this situation is give me the information anyway, so I can make a more autonomous decision about whether or not to be part of your research. But I want to say there is no such obligation. You can just move on to the next guy, who might be more reasonable than me. 
haven't done anything wrong by not helping me to make a more autonomous choice about that. Things are different if, say, I was a patient and I had a terminal illness and there's a cure for it, or serious enough, had cancer, and I said, if I don't want any treatment before you've told me about the treatment, I think then you should give me the information. But the reason you should give me the information is because you should do what's best for me. You believe this will benefit me, and you want me to make a more informed choice about it. So that's an instrumental reason. That's, I think that's perfectly true. But it doesn't mean it's a standalone notification. I've gone through that very quickly, and I'm sure there'll be questions about it, but I'm going to leave it at that point. Because uh, I've got other things I want to say. For that reason, I want to say the obligation to respect people's autonomous choices isn't going to ground any informed consent, valid consent requirements. It's just not the right kind of thing to do it, given that most people haven't made any kind of an autonomous choice. Um, and so you just go ahead and give them the treatment without failing to respect their autonomous choice. When we come to accounts of autonomy as a feature of persons, uh, things are a little bit different. There are loads of different options here. This is where I start, people start, so you could say that they're autonomous if they live authentically, or they live independently, or they can plan their own lives and act in accordance with it, or they have the capacity to make decisions about what they want to do in accordance with their own aims and values. There's like loads of different versions. Um, in practice, in medical ethics, what you often find is a very minimal account of autonomy, which is basically a person, if a person is competent, they're autonomous in the relevant sense. Um, you find that stated quite explicitly in some, so if you read Beecham and Chokers' Principle of Mind Mental Ethics, at least the latest edition, it says that quite explicitly. That they think that lawyers and philosophers think that. Um, but, um, and they say that's the right way to think. Uh, so they often use a very minimal account, we'll see why they do. Um, later on. Again, just as before, there are the same four requirements. I think if there's the obligation to respect autonomy, it's going to ground an obligation to give the patient uh, information. Here, I'm not going to say, as I said, the last case that two is false. I think, um, I think it's false. I'm not going to argue for it in the same way. I'm going to go, I'm going to ask this question. Let's suppose it's true that it would, be, it would be a failure to respect a patient's autonomy to give him treatment he has not agreed to. I'm not going to argue for that, I'm just going to say, suppose that's true. Suppose, um, in that case, what his agreement does is changes the status of the doctor's act from one that does not respect his autonomy and therefore is wrong, to one that does not fail to respect his autonomy and hence is not wrong. The question is going to be this. Why does the agreement only do that if he has certain information? Like why, is there, why do I need to know stuff to be able to change the, the status of your act in that way? All accounts that say we need valid consent to respect autonomy take it that we, there is an answer to that question. I've never seen an answer to that question. I've never seen the question asked before. But um, I'm going to say why I think there's no good answer to that question and uh, preempt any attempts to answer it. Uh, what that means is just as I said in the case of regulation, that a person who lacks whatever that information is 
cannot consent. So I don't have it. If I say, yes, give me the treatment, and I'm acting voluntarily, whatever other conditions you want to stick in there, I fit them all. I say, look, I'm, I, I, I want the treatment, just give it to me. Uh, it would still be a failure to respect my autonomy to give it to me, because I'm not sufficiently well informed to give valid consent. I'm going to say that's a bit odd, right? Why is it a failure to respect my autonomy to do what I want you to do in that case? That's going to be one of the problems. The second question I'm going to suggest is, as I become more informed, so now you tell me stuff, and now I say, okay, just give it to me now, uh, suddenly it's no longer a failure to respect my autonomy to give it to me. And how does becoming a little bit more informed change that? Like where, is, where should that line be drawn? That's going to be the kind of fundamental problem I want to suggest here. Um, I do want to say, if we look at why is it that I gain, in, when I gain information, um, I change whether your actions um, respect my autonomy or not. It's easy to explain that, I want to say, if we hold that only informed people are autonomous. But that's not something anyone in medical ethics wants to say. Um, the reason I'm bringing it in here is not that that's a very common account, although it is suggested by um, a recent paper by John Corrin. Um, it's because that when I say this kind of thing in a talk, this is what people say as a response to me. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to respond before you get a chance to make that objection. Uh, it's, a it's much more, more problematic if there are autonomous people who are not informed. I'll take those in turn. Here's the first one. Those who lack the specified information are not autonomous. If that's true, remember, you can only respect your autonomy. You can only respect your autonomy of a person who's autonomous, right? The obligation to respect this person's, this uninformed person's autonomy, um, well, there is no obligation to respect their autonomy, they're not autonomous, right? That's why they can't make it the case that it's with respect their autonomy to give them the treatment. There's no case in which it's already not a failure to respect their autonomy because it doesn't tell you to do anything. As they get information, uh, they become the case that it would be a failure to respect their autonomy um, to give them treatment without their consent. And because I said that quite quickly, there's a slide now with lots of information which goes through those two cases. I say it's lots, there's lots of information. Um, if the person has the information and is autonomous, it would be wrong because it's a failure to respect their autonomy to give them treatment they've not agreed to. It's not wrong on those grounds of treatment they have agreed to. If they don't have the information and so they're not autonomous, it's never wrong on the grounds of failing to respect their autonomy to give them the treatment, irrespective of what they say. That's why giving them the information makes no difference. The agreement makes no difference to whether it's right or wrong or not, right? Because it's always not wrong. Um, now, as I said, this is not a very common account of autonomy. It does have this uh, implication, exactly the same as I said before, um, is this. The doctor ordered the treatment. The thought was it's wrong because it fails to respect their autonomy to give it without their consent. And I've said it's not wrong on the grounds it fails to respect their autonomy to give it without autonomous. Not wrong on those grounds. There's going to be no reason to seek consent. To seek consent, let alone valid consent. And furthermore, 
if the, you give the patient the information, you make them autonomous, and now you should respect their autonomy, and that gives you a new obligation that gets in the way of giving them the treatment, hence you shouldn't do that. Same kind of structure as before. A, more, a much more common account of autonomy is that you can have autonomous, ill-informed patients. Well, I said so far that it says nothing about them. So I'm going to suppose, I'm going to look at those now, and again, whatever account of autonomy you want to use, as long as a person who doesn't have information is autonomous. Suppose for the person's consent, um, to make it the case, that's it. Um, I think this, but these two claims are pretty common in the literature, right? For a person to make it the case that giving them the treatment does not fail to respect his autonomy, the person has to have certain information. Um, and if you don't respect their autonomy, you're doing something wrong. That's effectively a standard position. And now I want to consider a patient, I'm going to assume it's me, who goes to my doctor and says, look, my doctor says there's a, there's a great treatment for you. And I say, okay, give it to me. Um, I trust my doctor at the moment. I'm going to come back. It's always me. Sometimes I trust my doctor and sometimes I don't. In this example, I trust my doctor. She says, it's a great treatment. It will solve your pain straight away. I say, good, go, go, give it to me, right? I don't understand what the consequences of it. I what's really involved. Just give it to me. Do whatever test you want on my blood samples. You know, whatever you think's best, doctor. I say that voluntarily. Um, the question is now, the point is now going to be, would it fail to respect my autonomy just to do what I asked my doctor to do? If you think valid consent is needed, it would have to be the case, right? Because only an informed agreement makes it the case that it's not a failure to respect my autonomy. So doing what I say I want you to do would be a failure to respect my autonomy. As I get a little bit more information, and now I say, effectively, give me the treatment, it's no longer a failure to respect my autonomy. And the question is, why does that little bit of information make a difference? Um, if it wasn't a failure to respect, in the second case, a failure to respect my autonomy, how does the fact that I've got a little bit less information suddenly make it the case? I think there is no stable position, apart from fully informed, or very minimally informed. There is, as we'll see, some information I need to have to be able to consent. Effectively, I need to agree to something, and agreement is always to something. But that can be pretty big. That could be whatever you think's best. Right? I can't agree to that. Um, so I, it's going to be that minimal. That's how minimal I'm going to go with the information. Um, how does that bit of information make a difference? Is the I've already said that. So here's some a couple of responses you might have to this. One is you might think, look, I when I say doctor, just do whatever you think is best, I'm not really acting very autonomously on your favourite account of autonomy. I could make more autonomous choices, I could act more autonomous, I could be more autonomous. Um, than I am. I think that's right, but I don't think it's relevant to what I'm saying. 
I, here's why I don't think it's relevant to what I'm saying. Well, there's two reasons I don't think it's relevant. That I would be more autonomous if I was better informed doesn't mean you're going to fail my current autonomy um, were you to act on my current choices. If the idea is it's only a failure to respect our autonomy, it would be a failure to respect our autonomy if we could be more autonomous. Um, that's just going to drive you to the camp that it's always a failure to respect autonomy, unless they have all the information that could, they could have. No patient has all the information they could have. That would make all medical treatment a failure to respect people's autonomy. Um, that's not a good way to go. Right? That's a reason not to go this way. Um, the second thing I think that's going on here, and I'm just going to say this quickly and move on. Um, the requirement to respect my autonomy requires that you treat me as self-governing in some way. It doesn't, it's not the requirement to treat me as self-governing only when I'm doing a good job of governing myself. Um, it's not that, okay, I could do it better, uh, so you're going to make sure I do do it better, and only then are you going to respect my choices. It's not, we'll respect your autonomy when you do a good job of being self-governing. It's, you should respect me as a self-governing individual. If you want to say, we should encourage, we should ensure that people are making good, using their capacity for autonomy well, you can say that. But I think that would not correctly be described as respecting their autonomy. It's more a question of paternalism. It's a question of saying, I think you'd be better off making a decision in this way. I'm going to make sure that you do make it in that way. Um, that is roughly a paternalistic position. Um, so that's not what's going to come out of respecting person's autonomy, unless we're using some kind of redefinition of this. By respect for autonomy, we mean paternalism, which I'm assuming we're not doing. Um, that was the... Here's where I think we've got to... I want to say there's no reason to think that giving an autonomous patient treatment he's voluntarily agreed to would be a failure to respect his autonomy irrespective of how much or how little information he has, as long as he has enough information to be able to agree to something. And I say, I think that he can just agree to you doing whatever you think is best. Um, I, he, actually, for it to be voluntary, he also has, I think, to believe that um, he had a choice. Um, if he he's had no choice, it's hard to see how that's a voluntary agreement. Um, but that's it. Um, now that's a lot less than on most accounts that relate to autonomy. Uh, it's a lot less than the regulations require. It's a lot less um, than every account of informed choice that I, consent that I've seen. Uh, but I'm going to say, respect for autonomy, that's all it requires. And now I'm going to go back from that a little bit and give you some reasons why we should give people information. One of them is this. We start from this position. The doctor ought to give her patient particular treatment and it would be wrong to do it without his consent because that would be a failure to respect his autonomy. I haven't challenged that at all. I then said, well, that gave a doctor a reason to seek the consent of the patient and that man should give information because he could not consent without information. Now, it's that last bit that I think is part of the problem. It's the last bit I'm going to go back on. Because if my doctor were to say to me, Tom, I'm going to give you this injection, do you agree to that? I would say, what is it? Like, what's it for? What, why are you giving it to me? I'm not going to agree in practice. 
because I know I don't trust my doctor. I'm not going to agree just to her, just because she said so. So I'm going to hold out for information before I consent. Now, given the doctor has a reason to seek my consent, she's a reason to give me that information so that I will make my mind up so she can give me the treatment that she thinks is good for me, right? Um, now, this is not, it's not that I can't consent without the information, it's that I won't consent. And the fact that I won't consent doesn't mean that you won't consent. Mark might just say, yeah, go ahead, give me the injection. Not a failure to respect his autonomy just to give it to him, he's agreed, he's consented. I'm just going to stick my heels in and say, I'm not going to consent unless you tell me A, B, C, D and E, and that could be whatever I choose, effectively. My doctor ought to treat me, she has to do what she can to get my consent, within limits. At some point she's just going to give up. But, um, the point I want to make here though is that this is not the thought that you need that information in order for the consent to be valid. It's that in practice, in some cases you need to give people that information in order to get their consent in the first place. It's not about the nature of the consent, it's about are they going to agree or not. Um, you might not think that gives you very well. So the patient who says, yes doctor, whatever you say, just do whatever you want, um, they don't need any information, from what I've been saying so far. And you might think that should, we should give them some information. So, in the last couple of minutes, <laughs> five minutes, um, I've already said that. I want to go back and to the starting point and say this. My question at the start was why would it be wrong for a doctor to do something she believes will benefit her patient without his consent? And the answer I've been looking at is because to do so would fail to respect his autonomy. And so far I've been saying that's not a very good answer. There's lots of problems with that answer when we dig into it. Is there an alternative? But I think there is. I want to start it by comparing two ways in which we might benefit people. Giving them treatment my doctor giving me treatment and me giving my friend a birthday. I think it's widely held that my doctor to give me treatment would be wrong if it was done without my consent. Um, but I don't think it's widely held that people think it's wrong for me to give my friend a birthday present without her consent. Um, when that's informed about, before I do it, about what I'm going to give her and what the consequences of that might be. She doesn't need to know that in advance. And the question could be why? Right, what, what's the difference? And I want to say that this is the difference. Or one of the differences. Giving a person medical treatment, of a surgery kind of case, involves doing things. Things like touching the body, inserting things into the body, doing something that might harm them. Although hopefully it wouldn't harm them. That's not the aim of medical treatment, but it might harm them. Well, giving my friend a present doesn't usually involve any of those things, right? Um, I wrap it up in a nice little parcel and hand it over. I don't insert it into people's bodies. That's not that kind of present. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm going to say this is, this is going to be the explanation, right? So I'm going to. This way, I want to, I want to go back now and take that tape recording and edit a bit. Um, anyway, what I want to say here is that the reason in the medical case could be something like this. It would be wrong to give treatment without consent because doing so would involve touching the patient's body and it's wrong to touch, intentionally touch people's bodies without their consent. It would involve putting something in the body and it's wrong to insert things into people's bodies without their consent. It's wrong to, this is more controversial actually, it's wrong to harm them without their consent, but that's true, it's a matter of some considerable debate. 
Um, and it would involve that. And because of that, we need the patient's consent to being touched, the patient's consent to having something inserted into him, the patient's consent to being exposed to the risk of harm, something like that. Um, now, the fact that I said to my doctor, do whatever you think is the best treatment, and in fact what she thinks is the best treatment involves sticking things a needle into me, doesn't mean that I have consented to her sticking a needle into me, right? Uh, it doesn't follow from the f simply from my broad agreement that I've, I didn't know she, that involved sticking a needle into me. She can't assume that I've consented to it. In order for me to have consented to, a, to a sticking things into my body, I have to know that I need to do that. Um, and as such, I need information about that in order to be able to consent. Not to consent to the treatment, but to, to consent to something being put into me. Right, that's... And, a particular treatment might have lots of things like that. So it might be sticking something into me, it might be touching me, it might be might be um, harming me, it might just no. And what, what will be more dependent on the details of the treatment? I'm not going to give an exhaustive list here effectively. Now, why would it be wrong to do any of those things without consent? And this is where I'm going to go very quickly because I'm going to stop at this point and ask for questions. But here's the kind of thing I'm going to suggest might be um, I think I'm going to make use of what David Owens calls a permissive interest here. Um, Owens doesn't write about medical cases, he writes about sex. And he says, so his position is this, why do we need consent for sex? Um, and one of the things he wants to say is that we have an interest an interest that other people should respect and respond to in controlling who is permitted to do certain things. Right? It would be bad for us, he says, if it was always wrong for someone to have sex with me. That would be bad for me. It would be bad for me if everyone could have sex with me. Well, I've got an interest in being, some people being allowed to do it and others not, and for me being able to control it. And we might say the same about any insertion of things into my body. The same as give me an injection. It would be bad if no one could give me an injection, right? Because sometimes I really want an injection uh, from my doctor. Uh, it, would be, it would be bad if anyone could just inject stuff into me, irrespective of, of whether I agreed or not. Um, so I've been interested in it sometimes being permissible and sometimes not, and it being me that controls it, roughly. Um, now, he doesn't use that example. He uses one which involves touching the body. And you might think it also helps. One thing I like about this kind of approach, which is not going to cover everything, uh, is that it does help to explain some other cases which might look problematic. So here's an example. This was an example that one of my students, my first MA dissertation student, gave me. So what about dissertation of this? This happened to me straight out of my PhD. And he said, uh, I was on the ward, uh, I was working in the theatre, as a nurse, working in the theatre, and we had a, a, a female patient came in, she was in for an appendectomy, I think it was, and um, the surgeon opened up the gown and grabbed her breasts and said, hey, look at that, and I think, it's, uh, to everyone, what was wrong? I said, I thought that was wrong, but I didn't know what, I was, I was a new nurse, I didn't know what to do. Why was it wrong? Well, I want to say it's wrong because we have an interest in controlling who's permitted to do things like that. And he hadn't got her permission. It's not that 
he failed to respect her autonomous choices. She's never thought about the surgeon doing it. She's never even addressed the question. And it's not that it stops her living a life which is her own or self-governed or anything. She never finds out. She never found out. I want to say this is the kind of reason that works there, and the same reason works when it comes to the consent case. That's why we need consent in that case as well as in others. I've indicated that there's another, there are other possible things you might say. You might go on terms of second personal standing. I don't particularly like that, but some people might. Uh, I'm going to stop at that point because I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, any questions?